0: Good evening, I sense a lot of excitement in this group, I don't know why, right? It's not like there's a, a really fabulous pianist coming to play and, or some particular piece that isn't often produced or, you know, Dudamel conducting or any of those things. I definitely feel the vibe, this is an exciting Rachmaninoff festival, this cycle of concerts. And tonight's has some very special things to offer, not least because it's the third concerto uh, around which so much lore and mythic power has developed, uh, particularly in the last 50 years, uh, as we begin to get different people taking on the long cadenza and then Shine came out. So we'll talk more about the third concerto, but we're going to start uh, with the bells. And I'm very happy to welcome, I'm going to get this right, Manet Galoyan. Yes, the soprano for tonight. So, Manet has kindly agreed to spend a few minutes with us to talk about her experience of this piece. So, I was wanting to ask Manet, when did you first become aware of the bells as a piece?
1: Actually, this is not the very first time that I'm performing The Bells. Um, my first experience with The Bells was in 2019, and, and I sang it with the Dallas Symphony, oh. and then I sang it with the Houston Symphony, the same season. It's very interesting because, um, obviously, I knew of The Bells because I studied in Armenia, and um, Russian schooling is very prominent there, and. So, Rachmaninoff is a god as everywhere, but anyways. Um, but I've never actually studied it, and I, I never paid too much attention to it. Right. Um, it's beautiful, and it's haunting. It'll haunt you days to come after the performance, I promise you.
0: <laughs> so, that's just know that, right? <laughs> You'll have this incredible effect, which comes... We'll get into some of the translation and yeah. the, the text part of it, but also I find that Rachmaninoff's music for this piece is quite unusual. It is not the music that you're used to hearing in the symphonies and the concerto. There's something uh, from the first time I heard it, which was actually, I have taught for 20 years at the Colburn Conservatory across the street. I was chairperson of musicology there. And, um, I, found, I wanted to teach more than just, they, they think it's just the piano concertos and the symphonies, and I wanted to bring something in, and I read about the bells. And what struck me is I immediately thought, the bells, because weirdly enough, my mother had this poem, this, this collection of poems, 150 great poems or something, and she would read Edgar Allan Poe's The Bells to me, which was very strange because All I knew is I liked that it went the bells, 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 and it kept repeating that, and I learned the word tintinabulation, and I thought this is the most fun poem. So I couldn't believe that Rachmaninoff, I thought, how did that happen? So there is a story there, and we talked about the fact you will be hearing it sung in Russian, in a Russian translation.
1: Yes, and the first uh, movement actually is quite uh, jolly. Yeah, it's the bells. You hear all the bells in the orchestra, and the texture, and the instruments. You hear all the bells. And it's quite uh, joyous. But my... And the first one is the silver bells. Right. My bells is the golden bells. And that's the sound of the... um, She's the bride. Right. The golden bells of weddings. Exactly. Yes. Golden bells of the weddings. And... It's kind of, it's not one of those uh, very intensely happy weddings, but it's transcendent in the happiness. It's right. different. Um, sometimes it's a bit melancholic, and some other times it's this big boom of many vast, vast variety of uh, emotions.
0: Right. And so the original po- poem sets it up. As there's four different bells that, through their metals, mm-hmm. what they're made of, they come to symbolize certain passages of life, certain ex- human experiences. So the first one is sleigh bells, silver bells, twinkling. It talks about the twinkling stars, and you you definitely get the idea of childhood, of, of youthfulness. Then we move to the golden bells, and to and it's there's this beautiful thing about you know warm golden tones flowing through um, we veer a little bit in the third movement yeah it's, it's we, a bit different it's, it's almost
1: no bells in the third movement
0: right they don't actually there's bells in the text but not but so, much, not in the so mo- much in the instrumentation right and the the bell sound is being mimicked by the orchestra in a way you don't have the actual bells and these are the bells of alarms of fire alarms uh, the idea—they call them brazen. So the idea is that they're brass, mm-hmm. and they to hear them is not joyous no. or or childlike. It's
1: always a panic. Third one, it's like the panic in your blood, right. but it's amazing.
0: <laughs> so that one and the choir has a, the chorus has an amazing part for that as they kind of bring that sense of fear and and panic into. It's the chorus solo. Right, it's the chorus's solo, so be sure, you know, clap a lot at the end for the chorus. Um, And then we have the bass come in at the end, the bass soloist, baritone soloist. Uh, And it's the iron bells.
1: The iron bells of death.
0: Of death, of the funeral. Of the funeral. And even in Poe, it starts to get, well, I mean, Edgar Allan Poe, we don't usually think of happy endings in most of his you know, works.
1: That's why I think it attracted Rachmaninoff a little bit. (laughs) Yes, Rachmaninoff was
0: like, this is perfect. He read it and he was like,
1: perfect, this is mine.
0: Exactly, and the translation, which was done by Konstantin Balmont, this Russian Edgar Allan Poe fan. In fact, he as a poet made his name more through doing these translations, like five books and everything. He was a, a super fan of Poe and saw him as a, kind of prophet of human experience and saw in his life. So he, it's a loose translation.
1: Yes, I wanted to say the translation is kind of loose, but um, it sounds beautiful as well in Russian, I have to say.
0: The Russian is, yes, yeah, so the using the words, because you can't see the bells, 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 that's the onomatopoeia of bells, 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 they change instead. Yes,
1: yeah, it's not always the bells. It's we the kolakala. sound of the bells. It's right. the, the, yeah, for example, I never say uh, bells in my movement.
0: So there, the, the references become the, the music has to fill this in. Exactly. Um, and, and with the fourth movement, it's, it's interesting because it is quite dark in the Poe original, not so much in the setting that Rachmaninoff does.
1: The text is not so dark, but the music is, no?
0: Yes. It definitely, you so there are, there's a sense that you're not dealing just with death, but with uh, ghouls, with, un, with restless sense restless. Of, of not actually gone to repose, of yeah. peace. So there's a, a restlessness in there. Um, and in the Poe poem, it becomes more um, kind of frantically repetitive. Mm-hmm. With the same things, bells, 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 groaning, moaning, bells, ghouls, bells, 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 and you feel this kind of sense of a panic and a restlessness and a fear.
1: Yeah, and in in the Rachmaninov as well, it starts kind of this um, um, swaying motion, and then in the middle part, it's the bells, 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 g- g- moaning and moaning and the uh, growing like um, uh, screaming and so on and. Should I tell them the end, or should it be a surprise? No,
0: they don't want any spoilers. <laughs> okay. We heard from our public, we're going to save that for them. You have to wait. You have where to does, wait. Where does Rachmaninoff land in the moaning and the groaning of the bells? Uh, I'm always reminded because, you know, again, just coming at it first through Poe, and then learning about this, not just a Russian translation, but really a Russian reimagining of the Poe. Like, really trying to think also from a a Russian point of view, Balmont coming there, and then reimagined again through Rachmaninoff's music. Um, I mean, there is always that macabre sense and the melancholy certainly associated with Poe. Long ago, I bought my son uh, a t shirt and had Edgar Allan Poe's face, and the quote was, I just want to dance. Which was never, which always got a chuckle from anybody who recognized who it was. Poet that is not who we think of—not really a, a a dancing soul. There's a great deal of gravitas around what seems like an innocuous instrument, a sound, the bell.
1: Hence the connection with Rachmaninoff. No,
0: but I find it
1: a very beautiful cultural also connection because Rachmaninoff lived in the states, right, and. Exactly. No, it was, and 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 he's Russian, and Poe is so melancholic, and um, all these emotions, and uh, the connection is very beautiful.
0: And he also was attracted, as so many uh, Europeans, but pr- he talked about this uh, about the sound of the bells yeah. being an everyday event. You rose to them, you walked to them, you worked to them you vacationed with them, you went to church with them. The sounds of bells told you the passage of time, literally. And so I think for Rachmaninoff, that metaphor worked yes. really well. Yes.
1: I think in, in general, all um, not all, but there, there are a few Russian composers that like the emphasis on the bells. Yes, It means it's, it's a cultural, a
0: lifestyle thing and you. Another thing that you know, you've mentioned that you, your second language is Russian. Yes. So you were at an advantage in a way <laughs> to be able to. What do you find uh, is particularly special about singing in Russian? What is because every vocalist enjoys. In, you know they have to embody. They have to really. The language changes. The mouth shape. The way that you sing. What is it about Russian that you find particularly special?
1: I especially like to sing in Russian and Russian music. I don't know why it feels so good. <laughs> but I think um, the language itself, it's very... Um, the vowels are pure. There are some combined vowels, but it's dark. The vowels are dark. And to me, it's very organic to sing in Russian because it just goes where it has to go. And, it's very expressive, and it's kind of yummy to sing in Russian. <laughs> is,
0: there, is there a word in your movement, in your solo, is there a word you really enjoy singing?
1: I really haven't thought about this, but...
0: that um... feels good <laughs> in the mouth and the voice. Wow, <laughs> I, that was a very good question. It's like one of those ones where sometimes you realize, oh, that word yeah. is going to be terrible on that note in that place. But then there's others you're like, oh,
1: yes. There's this word, a uh, word, uh, which is difficult to translate, um, but uh, it's like the, the enjoyment and it feels very nice to sing (laughs) So
0: You can really have that moment of pleasure and enjoyment while you're singing it. I mean, this is something that often uh, instrumentalists don't really think about, is that you have to embrace, you're not just going through vowel sounds, even if you don't speak the language, a singer has to learn what the meaning of each word properly, they should, Oh, and yeah. there is a yeah, sensation, word to word. right? There's a, there's a sensation. You're, everything for your voice has to, in a way, uh, in a way, you're, you're setting, you make new settings for the voice yeah, with that uh, language. Yeah, of course.
1: It's like uh, you have settings on your laptop for stuff. Same way your brain makes the settings for the different languages, and um, it's like the um, sound, sound uh, becomes different and we have to adjust, we just have to adjust. The hardest is probably French for me.
0: With the vowels sometimes? Yes. 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 The, the particular vowels. Yeah, the particular very...
1: many vowels combined and that have to be sustained are very difficult.
0: Yes, <laughs> having both of them in your head. and yeah. a long line. and then
1: sustain it for two bars, three bars, can be very tricky.
0: <laughs> well, I'll be introducing them to your movement in a moment, so they'll hear a little bit about just why it's so... Yummy and delicious. (laughs) I want to thank you so much, Monet, and we're going to let you get ready because you'll be coming up soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Enjoy. Toy, toy. You can tell that I'm a, a, a teacher because I just start talking I always assume everybody, you're in class and everybody knows who I am, so I'll introduce myself at this point. Um, I'm Christy Brown Montesano. I'm now an assistant teaching professor at UCLA in the musicology department at the Herb Alpert School of Music uh, and a, what we call a public musicologist, somebody who loves to be able to share uh, my thoughts on music and background and use my skills to connect with audiences. I, as I told you, was very excited about this piece, The Bells. Um, It says something about the confidence that Rachmaninoff had for this piece, that he actually referred to it as his third symphony. Well into I mean, for a long time, in fact, he wouldn't actually change that until he wrote a third symphony 20 years later. So the Bells uh, it was, was premiered in 1913, and you have now, um, in the '30s, he has his third symphony. And I say he must have had confidence because there's this, a long story of his first uh, outing as a symphonist that kind of uh, gauntlet that you throw down to show that you're a serious contender in the world of composition. And it was poorly performed and poorly reviewed. And he suffered greatly for this. He had always been pretty good at, at this music thing, and this was the first time he ran into kind of a hard no. It took him a long time before he came back and made the second symphony, which did somewhat better. But it was this work that Rachmaninoff would actually call his favorite of his own works. So he had a great affection for the bells. The way he came to know the poem is a wonderful little story in that he received an anonymous letter with the translation by Constantine Belmont in Russian of Poe's poem and he said I saw this and I immediately knew I had to set it to music. We can think a young cello student, young woman who had, you know, kind of a fan crush on Rachmaninoff for sending that letter and inspiring Rachmaninoff to take a look at this poem and set it as a choral symphony. Belmont himself, as I said, was a huge Poe scholar. His translations were in almost every Russian magazine at the time of Poe's work. It set off a, a kind of vogue for this American poet in Russia at the time. When he translated it, however, his feelings about the poet and what it meant to him, Belmont, a symbolist poet, and he changed a lot of the imagery. We don't have, I said, those repeated bells, bells, bells. He concentrates a lot on the idea of eyes and water, fire. Something that the two poems do have in in common besides the sound of the bells, the feeling of the bells as they sound through our lives, is night. The moon comes out. There's a sense that a lot of this uh, poem has an evening, a darkness, which we talked about a little just now. The title alone would have been enough for Rachmaninoff. As I said, he talked about that uh, the bells were important for every Russian. He said, this love for bells is inherent in every Russian. All my life, I have taken pleasure in the differing moods and music of gladly chiming and mournfully tolling bells. If I had been at all successful in making bells vibrate with with human emotion in my works, it is largely due to the fact that most of my life was lived amid vibrations of the bells of Moscow. In the drowsy quiet of a Roman afternoon, which is where he wrote the bells, With Poe's verses before me, I heard the bell voices and I tried to set down on paper their lovely tones that seemed to express the varying shades of human experience. In fact, Rachmaninoff was in Rome at this time with his family. He was staying at a place where Tchaikovsky had, had stayed and for a while used the very same desk that Tchaikovsky had used. This would have meant a great deal and been a, a, a very moving moment for Rachmaninoff for certainly Tchaikovsky was probably his biggest idol. And at some point in the part where the baritone in the fourth movement talks about some of the pain of losing someone, he put Tchaikovsky's initials, he wrote those into the score. Another reason, besides my childhood memories, that I was fascinated by this piece is it didn't seem to sound exactly like Rachmaninoff. It didn't sound like the ones that got turned into all by myself, right? It didn't sound like that Rachmaninoff. And Rachmaninoff, for so much during his lifetime and afterward, there was a real rejection of him. There was a sense that he was too conservative, that he was a man out of time, that he was a creative voice out of time, still stuck in the Russia of the 19th century. He often wasn't given any credit for any modernist ideas. Uh, But I remember that the first time when I listened to the bells, I was surprised by the novel sounds I was hearing. The sleigh bell opening movement, for example, features the same kind of layering, repetitive ostinati, and a build-up in texture that I was associating with Stravinsky, and I thought particularly of this uh, excerpt from *Petrushka*. So, Stravinsky's *Petrushka*, written just a couple years before *The Bells*. There's one sound and then here is an excerpt from the first movement of the bells. So I thought that is, this is a very exciting and fresh sound. Um, we also get the same kind of layering and uh, as Monet was saying, not a literal bell sound but more the evocation of bell sounds. For those of you who have maybe heard uh, Boris Godunov, the, the coronation uh, scene, there's an idea that the bells are ringing and this reminded me, so this is the alarm movement, the capturing the emotions of the brass bells ringing because of a deadly fire. More dissonance will come in, layering. But not, again, not the sound we're necessarily associating with the more popular works of Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff had come mostly through the Moscow School, which was seen as uh, generally a little more conservative, a little more cosmopolitan than the St. Petersburg School, which had featured have been the home city of the Mighty Five. Uh, who were high Russian nationalists in terms of musical style, it would be the city of Stravinsky, also of Prokofiev, and of Shostakovich. So he had a different approach to this. Uh, and There were other ways in which there was a tie to older tropes of classical music. In this piece, uh, Rachmaninoff will quote uh, a very old school melody that he was absolutely fascinated by and which had fascinated composers during the Romantic era. And that is the original chant, the sequence dies ire. And this chant, you once you hear it and get to know it, you then realize you hear it everywhere. Anytime a film Scorer or television writer or a symphonist wants to suggest that death is unpanned and nearby will have this. So when you listen, it's a, it's a very simple melody. That's a big part of it. This kind of crab like movement down. Solve se in favila, teste david cum civila. But it's really la da 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 da, la da 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 da. How many people, I'm guessing not a lot, but how many of you have seen Squid Game? Oh, good, there's like bump, 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 bump. Bum, 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 bum. Absolutely quoting the D-A-C-R-E in Squid Game. Now you all want to listen. It will be there and you, ha- you know that you're a musicology nerd when you're watching Squid Game with your college-age kid and you're like, and you've made him one too because you turn to each other and you go D-A-C-R-E, right? So that's, Rachmaninoff would have loved that. He used it in many of his works, the Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, his fourth piano concerto, his symphonic poem, The Isle of of the Dead, and his symphonic dances. He was really fascinated with this. This is the melody in the wedding movement that we start out with an invocation. Just the beginning, let's listen to that. I'm not sure when you're about to speak about the golden bells of weddings, why that came. he was a happily married man. Um, maybe the responsibility, but the DAC race shows up at the beginning of this, the golden bells. And he mixes it with this very you know, gothic sensibility. He mixes it later in the movement with a nod to Wagner's fashion forward music drama and really bad love story, Tristan und old. So he combines in this one place, uh, Tristan motifs. for those of you who know it, you'll recognize it, uh, and then puts the D-A-C-A at the same time. Uh, we have to remember that Tristan, the two words that go together are love death. So he brings that in the wedding movement. we have the tristan swell. So those two things together uh, are ways that he brings a kind of uh, signature, his fascination with the Dies Irae. This melody makes an appearance in the final movement of the bells as well. This is the, the four stanza of the poem, the iron bells, funerals, and the wandering dead. The baritone soloist joined by the chorus sings of the heavy death knell, moaning, mournful, and angry, growing to a long rumble, announcing that the sufferer has fallen asleep. And at that moment, we hear in the orchestral parts that opening in of the Die Sirei melody. So you're in, yes, for this is a a huge climax. So that's some of the material that Rachmaninoff is working with as he reimagines, translates into music, Poe's poem as understood by his Russian contemporary Balmont. Now with the time we have left, uh, we'll spend a little time with the third piano concerto which has achieved an almost mythic status, as I mentioned, among musicians and audiences. Its treacherous technical demands, its length, it is the longest of Rachmaninoff's four piano concertos, at at least 40 minutes, usually. For those of you who remember the movie Shine, about the pianist David Helfgott, The words of John Gilgood as David's teacher at the Royal College of London may have lodged in your brain as it did mine, as both praise and a warning. Uh, Responding to young David's desire to play this concerto at a competition, Gilgood replies, no one's ever been bad enough to attempt the Rack (laughs) 3. I always thought that's how you have to say it, the Rack 3. Indeed, the film implies that the work hastened the breaking point of David's already fragile mental health. Certainly, there have been other works written for the piano that are as difficult, maybe more difficult than Rachmaninoff's third concerto, but there is no denying that it has a reputation among pianists as a Herculean work written by one of the greatest pianists of his day. Ironically, Rachmaninoff remarked that the third concerto was more comfortable for him to play than the second. We have to consider here one of Rachmaninoff's great advantages. It's physical. He had a hand span of 12 inches. He was able, for those of you who know a little bit of music, he was able to reach a 13th interval clearly, cleanly, no hanging on the lip of the keys. For those who don't know that we're getting three notes shy of two octaves with one hand. I had another way. I thought, how else to explain this? I did a little digging and looked into the hand spans of some of our living basketball players. Only four seemed to have matched Rachmaninoff's foot-long hand span and all of them much taller than he was, although Rachmaninoff, who had Marfan syndrome, uh, was six foot six. So, the ones that came out are uh, Marjanovic, Jonas, uh, oh wow, Ante Kaunpo, excuse me, don't know that, Gregory Smith, and the beloved Shaquille O'Neal. So, Shaq and Rachmaninoff, hand brothers there. They, they like, yes, they could give each other five and actually have a meeting of the minds there. Rachmaninoff played the premieres of all four of his piano concertos following an established tradition of earlier pianist-composers like Mozart, Beethoven and Brahms. Rachmaninoff established himself fairly early as a triple hyphenate professional, a pianist, composer, conductor. But his performances and tours were essential to the promotion of his own works and also crucial to maintaining his family which was uh, growing quickly. He had his wife Vera and two young daughters, Irina and Tatiana. In fact, Rachmaninoff composed the third concerto expressly for his first tour of the United States in 1909. Not because he was particularly excited about coming here, but he recognized that the tour would be favorably lucrative. People were willing to pay him a lot and they really wanted a third piano concerto. Uh, The work would receive a high-profile double premiere in New York, first by the New York Symphony under the baton of Walter Damrosch, followed soon after by the New York Philharmonic performance with a fellow composer-conductor on the podium, someone you may have heard of, Gustav Mahler. Given the popularity of Rachmaninoff's concerts today and the high esteem that his works enjoy with generations of pianists and audiences, the less than enthusiastic press reactions after the New York premieres are a bit surprising. The New York Times review led with an underwhelming title, simply, The Philharmonic Again. Then offered a rather backhanded compliment that while there really wasn't anything new to the piece, the third concerto was more mature, more finished, more interesting in its structure, and more effective than Rachmaninoff's other compositions in this form. The reviewer also felt that other pianists could have played the work better. But the public ate it up. The reviewer for the New York Herald reported uh, that the audience kept applauding Rachmaninoff, hoping to make him play some kind of encore. Uh, and basically, the ruler said the composer held up his hands, uh, it, he said, uh, with a gesture which was clearly meant that although he was willing, his fingers were not. Whether or not there are more skilled players available, f- were more skilled players available for the concerto, one extenuating circumstance bears mention here. Rachmaninoff started uh, composing the th- third concerto in the early summer of 1909. Uh, He finished it, according to biographer Rebecca Mitchell, just one week before his departure to New York. This means he had not yet learned the solo part while he boarded the ship to America in October. So he had to bring along a fake keyboard to practice the part while he was on the boat, and then arrive and try to get in shape. So that is a nail biter. And the popular sense of Rachmaninoff's works as Everest to be climbed is still a common trope in Rachmaninoff literature and lore. You're going to hear Yuja Wang play the third concerto tonight, but she is also the current leader of a kind of extreme sports Rachmaninoff event. Meaning, how many of his pieces can you play in one night? Last month, she played all four concerti and the Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini, which is really a fifth concerto, in a single concert at Carnegie Hall. So I think tonight should feel like a piece of cake. Just a little bit about the music, Um, since we don't have a lot of time, but I would like to mention that again, with Rachmaninoff and particularly in the, in the symphonies and in the concerti, you're talking about melody. When we think about Rachmaninoff, we do think about melody. Um, and he introduces us to a very interesting one at the, at the very beginning of this piece. In the simplest terms, playing just octaves in the piano. And when you listen to this melody, it does seem to have a folk-like or chant-like idiom, not big leaps, very simple, what we call step stepwise movement, where notes are close together, so where you could easily sing it. And He said, in fact, that he wanted for this melody to sing. He wanted the piano to sing in the simplest terms, and so he backs the orchestra way off, and we get this beautiful, simple, Melody. I think I'll have to ask Kevin. Can I have a little more ta- sound here? cantabile, a deep sense of a, a tune that, like the bells, the kind of tune that every Russian could sing. This is at the heart and this tune will come back in the other movements. I want to point out just one last thing before I let you go and that's the end. And this is, I love this ending and I'm going to tell you a secret so you can all enjoy it when you get up to clap. Da ba ba bum, oops, let me get that lap up. Da ba ba bum. You'd say, oh, that's like the Fifth Symphony of Beethoven, but it was also rock on and off. So they have always said that he signed off with his own name. So when you applaud tonight for the wonderful Yujiwang, also send up some good thoughts for Sergei Rachmaninoff. Thank you very much. <laughs>